Welcome to the Untold Civil War, and we have a great episode coming to you today. But before we get started, I want to thank all of my patrons on Patreon. This episode would not be possible without your support. I also want to thank all of you who are liking and following us on social media. That's Instagram and Facebook. Your support helps get the word out, and the more, the merrier. I also want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, The Badge Maker. Your reenacting impression is incomplete without an item from The Badge Maker. He is the provider of the most authentic core badges, ID discs, watch fobs, and Civil War pipes. Link in the show notes. And now, shut off the Netflix, turn up the volume on your earbuds, and let's delve into some untold Civil War. I'm here with Rob Grandchamp, a native Rhode Islander who earned his MA in American history from Rhode Island College and is the recipient of the Order of St. Barbara from the Rhode Island National Guard, which is very interesting. Uh, He has written at least 15 books on military history, including Colonel Edward E. Cross, New Hampshire, Fighting Fifth, a Civil War biography, which is the topic for today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Great great to uh, be here. Now, before we actually uh, get started, I just want to mention that my uh, first exposure to your content was through military images. On YouTube, you shared your collection of the Seventh Rhode Island images, and that sort of inspired my collecting of Civil War images and uh, artifacts. Uh, how is that collection coming? Well, um, the, the collection is, uh, is coming along uh, very well. I've been collecting images from the Seventh uh, Rhode Island for a number of years now. However, uh, being a, uh, a married father with uh, two small children, you might hear in the background the uh, you know priorities in terms of what I uh, what I pick up these days are uh, are a bit limited. But you know, being a uh, being a, a regiment from a small state, there really isn't too much out there on the Seventh Rhode Island. So as things do pop up, I do uh, I do pick them up. Just don't tell my wife. Yeah. <laughs> I have the same thing. I've been looking, kind of following your train of thought where you pick one regiment and just focus on that Uh, because there's just so much out there. (laughs) You know, if if you don't focus down to one thing, you'll end up buying everything (laughs) if you could, right? Oh, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, even even for a small state like Rhode Island that only sent 14 regiments that's you know 14 things you could be collecting and uh right you know it's easy just to focus on focus on one and right. uh l- luckily like i said things don't pop up too often well i think we should just get into uh the topic for today and of course uh, i guess we'll kick it off with how did colonel cross get his start in life of course i know that is a very big <laughs> section of your book but uh if we could just uh bring it to um, uh, as brief as possible, uh, just get a sort of understanding of his origins, you know? Yeah, well, you know, with uh, Cross, you know, the the first 29 years of his life really prepared him for the 18 months that he uh, saw active combat in the Civil War. And uh, Edward Ephraim Cross is going to be born on April 22nd, 1832 in Lancaster, New Hampshire. And Lancaster, uh, even back in 1832 and even today, it's a very small town in uh, the far reaches of New Hampshire in Cohas County. It's actually even uh, north of the White Mountains. So even today, it takes a while to get up there. And his grandfather, uh, Richard Everett, was a uh, soldier in the American Revolution. He served in the 2nd Massachusetts Regiment. And after the Revolution, 
He uh, left Attleboro, Massachusetts, and uh, moved up to uh, New Hampshire. He uh, went to uh, Dartmouth College, got his law degree, and uh, returned to Lancaster to practice the law, became a judge, married, and had some kids. And Cross's mother was the third wife of Ephraim Cross, who was a local politician. He was a uh, ran a hat company, sort of did just about everything. He was uh, He's an interesting character in his own right. But uh, Ephraim Cross fathered seven or eight children. And actually, uh, Edward Cross's half-brother, Nelson Cross, would be the colonel of the 67th New York during the Civil War, the Long Island Regiment. Wow. Uh, but Cross being born uh, 1832, you know, growing up in this uh, rural, remote community really doesn't have the opportunities for advanced schooling. He goes to about sixth or seventh grade. But he learns early on in life fundamentals, learns how to go hunting early on. At age 12, he joins the town's militia company and becomes its lieutenant when he's 15. And at the same time, he becomes an apprentice at the local newspaper, the Kohas Democrat. And there he's going to learn how to become a printer and also the art of political writing under the owner of the paper, James Ricks. Uh, so he. He learns at an early age to become a newspaperman, picks up military tactics. Uh, at age 18, he uh, leaves Lancaster to go make his mark on the world. He goes to Canada for a few months, but then he uh, sets his eyes west. And he uh, settles in Cincinnati, becomes a printer at a newspaper called The Dollar Times, and uh, within a few years has worked his way up to become a national political correspondent. Wow, it really does show that was really fundamental in, in developing himself from a young man into the man he becomes because there is a lot of politics in his life and there is a lot of courageous military stuff in his life, you know, and that clearly comes from his upbringing. Yes. His mother growing up told him stories about, you know, her father who was in the revolution. He loved reading stories. His childhood hero was John Stark. The, uh, the hero of the Battle of Bennington. We know that he made at least several visits to uh, Fort Ticonderoga, to some other American Revolution battlefields. During the Mexican War, he saw several of his townsmen go off to fight in Mexico. He himself did not go, but uh, those soldiers returned, you know, with stories of fighting in Mexico, and that would later, you know, he would later write his own fiction set during the Mexican War. So he, he was quite, quite an interesting uh, individual, you know, not having the benefits of a college education, but, you know, having that, that world experience. You, you said he wrote his own, own fiction? Yes, he wrote uh, several long stories set during the Mexican War. Uh, one of them was called The Young Volunteers, which uh, follows several men from northern New Hampshire during their fight in Mexico. He also wrote stories, uh, fiction stories, uh, during the uh, colonial period with uh, Indians, uh, Native Americans in northern New Hampshire. But mostly his writing, um, that, that was some of his early stuff. By about 1855, when he became a, a political correspondent for the Dollar Times, you know, he really was focused more on the political uh, writing, especially in 1856 when he uh, joins the Know Nothing movement and, uh, you know, really becomes a, a national advocate for Millard Fillmore and the Know Nothings in 1856. Could you uh, explain for some of my listeners who might not know, but who exactly are the Know Nothings? 
Yes, the, the Know Nothings were a political uh, movement that sort of uh, spun out of the Whig Party in 1854-55, uh, along with the, uh, the rise of the Republicans. And basically, they were uh, a nativist party. You know, at this time, there's a lot of Irish, a lot of German immigrants coming into the United States. Where Cross was living in Cincinnati was a very large German community. And, you know, the typical nativist fears these immigrants were going to come in and take over. And so uh, Millard Fillmore, who, uh, you know, had been president in 1850 after Zachary Taylor's death, he runs on a, a nativist platform in 1856, uh, sort of in a, in a three-way race with uh, John Fremont with the Republicans and uh, Buchanan with the Democrats. And uh, Cross followed the Fillmore uh, campaign all over the country during his stumps. But Fillmore uh, comes in third place in that election, and uh, Cross you know, really becomes a, a broken man. He had put so much into uh, covering the campaign that, you know, mentally he's just drained after that. Wow. And, uh, you know, really start looking for, for new opportunities that he'll find out in Arizona. Is that where he is in Arizona when the Civil War breaks out or? Yes, yes. So um, after the, after the, uh, the campaign in 1856, uh, he goes back to New Hampshire for a few months, you know, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of his life. And uh, he receives a job offer in 1858 to go to Tubac, Arizona, which was a uh, silver mine town in southern Arizona near the Mexican border. And uh, Cross was going to set up the first newspaper in Arizona, which uh, would be called the Weekly Arizonian. And uh, he accepts the job. It also has a, a share in a silver mine out there. And uh, he... Uh, goes out west uh, with this party, uh, leaving uh, San Antonio and going across uh, Texas into Arizona. And one one remarkable thing about Cross was two facts. One, his best friend back in Lancaster was a guy named Henry Kent. And Henry Kent uh, stayed home, uh, became a lawyer, raised a family, and Cross wrote remarkable letters to Kent chronicling his upbringing, what he was doing in Cincinnati, what he was doing in Arizona. And Kent's descendants kept all those letters and gave them to the New Hampshire Historical Society. Also, newspapers. When I was uh, doing my research on Cross, period newspapers were remarkably important, uh, particularly newspapers from New York, Cincinnati, St. Louis, Cross wrote continuously. And uh, he wrote under the pen name Richard Everett, which was his uh, grandfather who had served in the revolution. And being able to find those newspaper sources uh, was quite remarkable in being able to, to tell his story, to flesh out the details. And so he goes to Arizona, he sets up a newspaper, but uh, it doesn't go, uh, doesn't go the way he planned. What happens to that paper? Well, he, you know, Cross was uh, Cross was a pretty thick-headed uh, individual. Being maybe a, a naive New Englander, he had been, you know, told that Arizona was like a garden state. You know, there was full of farms, and it was, you know, this this remarkable, beautiful place. And it's, he gets to Tubac, which is where he's going to set up his newspaper, and it's 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 what you typically think of like an old West town. It's like a one street town he's he wrote full of gila monsters and snakes <laughs> and there's, there's no there's no gardens there's the desert it's the desert of arizona 
he gets there and he had been misled by a gentleman named Sylvester Mowry, who was Arizona's uh, representative in Congress at the time, sort of an unofficial position. You know, he had read Mowry's reports that had been sent to newspapers back east. And once he sets up his own newspaper, the, uh, the Weekly Arizonian, he starts pounding at Maori. You know, why did you lie about what Arizona is? It's nothing but, you know, this dirty place full of gila monsters and snakes and, you know, the Mexican bandits running around killing people left and right. And Maori returns from Washington to uh, Tubac, and uh, he decides to challenge Cross to a duel. And being being the one who is challenged to the duel, Cross gets to decide which weapons to use. And Cross decides to use Burnside carbines. And so, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not making this up, breech-loading Burnside carbines. Where do they and find so those in I, Arizona? Uh, they brought them with them. Cross, oh, they had. Uh, okay. Cross had, uh, had bought some uh, with him when he uh, he bought them in San Antonio before he left. You know, the, the Burnside is a uh, is 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 a great gun to uh, to use, but never fight a duel with. The duel happens at uh, thirty yards on the Wind Street in Tubac, and both men fire three shots. Luckily, they miss each other. They, they go out, shake hands, but this was an actual duel. They were firing at each other, but uh, as Cross later wrote, the wind saved me. And so they, they fire the shots, and then um, Maori actually buys Cross out of his newspaper. And so uh, Maori takes over the, uh, the weekly Arizonian, and uh, Cross, is, uh, Cross is without a job. Well, it's interesting that you bring this up because I just done an interview couple days ago about the uh, Valverde campaign. And it's interesting that Confederates that went into that New Mexico territory said the same thing. The Texans said this was the biggest tricks Mexico ever played on the the U.S. government. There's nothing here. This is horrible. (laughs) We should give it back, you know. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. I've uh, been to two back and I can tell you there's not much there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then what happens uh, from there? Where is cross when you know on april 12th when fort sumter is bombarded and the war starts okay so uh, after he loses his newspaper he actually spends a few months over at fort fillmore uh riding around as a volunteer with the u.s dragoons under uh richard yule who uh becomes a confederate general and so you know he really hones his military skills chasing after the apaches riding with the dragoons and then he actually goes to mexico and uh, he's going to spend about nine months riding around with uh, Benito Juarez's uh, army. And this is sort of, you know, in his life, this is sort of the period where there's not much information uh, what he was doing in those nine months down in Mexico. We know he fought one more duel um, against a Mexican officer. This duel was fought with swords. Uh, wow. Cross uh, was wounded somewhat. Uh, he was also uh, wounded during a skirmish with some Apache south of the border. But... For the most part, uh, that time with uh, Juarez's army, we don't really know what exactly he was doing. And, you know, I I can tell you that the research uh, was exhaustive, but I just couldn't find that. But I can tell you that sometime in May of 1861, he finds out that uh, Fort Sumter had been bombarded. And so he uh, leaves Mexico and makes his way 
to San Francisco. It's very interesting. He actually uh, had to borrow stationery. And so he goes to the Wells Fargo office and he writes two letters. The first one he writes to his old friend back in Lancaster, Henry Kent, because at this point, Henry Kent is uh, entered politics and he is serving as an assistant adjutant general in New Hampshire, helping to raise troops. And uh, Cross tells Kent, who he hasn't seen in a few years, I'm coming home. Heard there's a war on, hope you can help me out. Cross is a hero, as I said, was uh, John Stark, who had fought at Bennington. And, you know, Cross's dream in life was to lead New Hampshire into glory in a great war. And he also writes a, another letter to Governor Berry of New Hampshire, volunteering his services. After uh, Cross had uh, left the Know Nothing movement after it fizzled out in 1856, he had become a Democrat. He couldn't stomach uh, the Republican politics of uh, stopping the expansion of slavery. So he rejoins the Democratic Party, which he had supported early on before the Know Nothings. So he writes to the governor and says, I'm a native of New Hampshire. I've had years of military experience fighting out west. I'm coming home and would like to offer my services to the state of my nativity. And uh, both of those letters make it back to New Hampshire before Cross does. But Cross goes to Concord, and he is there in late August 1861 and uh, meets with the governor and uh, they talk about raising troops and uh, you know Cross thought that was the end of it and he goes back to his father's home in Lancaster and a week later he receives a telegraph from the governor offering him command of the 5th New Hampshire Infantry and that's where Cross's Civil War story picks up. Fantastic. I mean, already he's living a real adventurous life, uh, riding around in Mexico and working over there in Arizona. And now here he is about to take command of the 5th New Hampshire. Can you tell us a little bit about the the 5th New Hampshire? Uh, What type of men made up the regiment and uh, what did they think of their commander? Yeah, the 5th is really interesting among New Hampshire units. You know, New Hampshire is a, a fairly large state, and, you know, they, they largely did their regiments in the county system. You know, counties sending regiments to war. The 5th, however, is unique because New Hampshire is composed of 10 counties, and each one of those counties sends a company uh, to regiment. Uh, the vast majority of the men were uh, farmers. There were some uh, manufacturers from some of the uh, towns in the Connecticut River Valley, such as uh, Company C from Lebanon, Company G from Claremont. But the vast majority of the men were farmers. And some of these men, uh, most of them were very literate. And some of them had read what Cross had been doing out west. His uh, antics, uh, his newspaper stories had uh, made their way into New Hampshire newspapers. And they knew, you know, what Cross had been doing. They knew that he was competent in military affairs, and they were willing to to serve under him. Um, New Hampshire you know, unlike unlike states, say, uh, Maine and Massachusetts, New Hampshire didn't really have a, a, a large supply of uh, West Point officers, uh, officers that had seen combat in the Mexican War. So New Hampshire really needed uh, trained officers early on. So Cross not only fit that bill as, you know, having those 
years of military training and experience. He was also a Democrat. And, uh, you know, Southern uh, New Hampshire, uh, primarily the industrial cities, Concord, uh, Manchester, Nashua, were large Democrat strongholds. And, you know, it sort of fit two, built, two check marks for Barry to appoint Cross to command of the fifth. He appeased the Democrats in the Southern part of New Hampshire and also got a man who was very competent to lead this regiment of New Hampshire farmers and mill workers to war. And when does that first happen? When do they first see the big elephant and how do they perform? They're going to leave New Hampshire in October 61. Uh, They're going to go down and join what becomes the Army of the Potomac. And they're going to be assigned to what becomes the 1st Division of the 2nd Corps under uh, Israel Richardson and then Bull Sumner Second Corps. So uh, their first, uh, their first, you know, sort of uh, military action is in late March of 62. They fight a, uh, a small skirmish uh, near the Rappahannock River, but then they get recalled to go and fight on the peninsula as part of McClellan's uh, campaign. And their first action is going to be in late May when they are going to build the Grapevine Bridge. Uh, This was a bridge that the 5th New Hampshire and the 61st New York will build to help connect Cleland's army that had uh, been separated by the uh, flooding of the Chickahominy River. But their first action is going to be on June 1st, uh, 62, at Fair Oaks. And the battle had been, uh, the battle had been going on all morning, at this point, the 5th is in Howard's brigade. Uh, Howard, uh, Oliver Howard, lose an arm there. He's actually buried right down the road from me in uh, Burlington, Vermont. The 5th is sort of held in reserve, and then when Howard's wounded, the uh, the 5th goes in. And uh, they go into the woods, and it's it's almost... Cross will later write, it's almost like what he had pictured in his youth. Uh, the flags are flying, the United States flag, the New Hampshire colors, uh, the fifes and drums beating. Uh, the fifth is 800 uh, rifles strong. They had uh, done very well up until this point in the war, maintaining almost a full strength. But they go into action against uh, Pickett's brigade of uh, Virginians. Uh, George Pickett at the time was a brigade commander. And... They drive Pickett's men back. It's a short, short, stubborn fight. Of course, of about 15 minutes, the 5th loses 200 men out of those 800, including Cross, who is shot in the thigh and also wounded in the temple by some buckshot. But uh, they do they do very well at Fair Oaks. And unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, Fair Oaks really does two things for the 5th New Hampshire. It establishes them as one of those regiments that is going to fight. But it also begins to add to their role of dead. The 5th suffers nearly 50 men killed or mortally wounded on June 1st. By war's end, the 5th New Hampshire will have the grim distinction of having more men killed in combat than any other Union infantry regiment. Wow. And what happened to Cross? Of course, he, he gets wounded, but this isn't the end for him. He gets very lucky, right? Yes, he uh, he goes back home. He spends the summer recovering in New Hampshire. 
spends uh, several weeks at his father's residence in Lancaster. He actually uh, manages to uh, go to Mount Washington, which is the highest uh, point in the Northeast. Enjoys a few days there on a rafting trip with his friend Henry Kent. The fifth, meanwhile, they're going to fight in the seven days and the retreat of McClellan's army back down the peninsula. Uh, So Cross spends that summer, most of July and most of early August, recovering in New Hampshire. Uh, He also does some recruiting for the regiment and brings about 50 new recruits back with him when he joins the Army in mid-August while they're at Harrison's Landing. And, I mean, as you can see from the wounds he received, he is definitely not afraid of combat and being up front with his men. I've heard a story about a red bandana and war paint. Where does that come from? That comes into effect at probably what is the uh, the, the greatest day of, of Edward Cross's life, the day that, you know, he truly becomes uh, what Winfield Scott Hancock would say was a magnificent fighter. The fifth is uh, back in action uh, in the Maryland campaign, uh, taking part, marching again north with the uh, 1st Brigade of the 1st Division of the 2nd Corps, this time under uh, John Caldwell, and they are going to go into action at Antietam on September 17th. 2nd Corps, the the 2nd Division of the 2nd Corps, uh, goes into action that morning in the West Woods under Sedgwick. They get routed. Finally, the 3rd Division of the 2nd Corps uh, goes into action against Bloody Lane, uh, the sunken road. They're routed. Finally, it's time for Richardson's 1st Division to go in. And uh, that morning, as uh, Cross was, Cross was a very, uh, very anxious man. He didn't like waiting very much. And uh, one of his soldiers, Charles Hale, wrote that it was waiting for him to go into action was like watching a lion in a zoo just pacing up and down along the bars. But once the gate was open, you know, Cross was a lion in combat. He was ferocious. And so he's waiting all morning for the order to go in. And shortly before Caldwell's brigade is sent towards the bloody lane, he turns to his men and says, you have never disgraced New Hampshire. I hope you will not this time. If any man runs, I will file closers to shoot him. If they do not, I shall myself. That's all I have to say. And the men in that regiment knew Cross meant it. If they ran away, he would have no problem shooting them in the back. Uh, Long story short, Richardson uh, sends his men into action against the Bloody Lane, and he rides up looking for uh, John Caldwell, who's standing the uh, the 1st Brigade, and Caldwell is nowhere to be found. He was drunk behind a haystack. And so Richardson rides up to Francis Barlow, commanding the 61st New York, Cross commanding the 5th New Hampshire, stands up in the stirrups of his horse, on his saddle, points to the bloody lane and says, get your asses up there. That's all you had to tell Cross. He draws he draws his sword, and the men start running forward towards bloody lane. Together with the 61st New York, they fire a point-blank volley from their Enfields down into the lane, and they drive the Confederates back from Anderson's brigade. Richardson sees at this point the end of the Confederacy is in sight and starts throwing every man he can 
to the breach. Uh, unfortunately, he's going to be mortally wounded by Confederate artillery fire. It was probably the best chance the Union had of ending the war at that moment. Uh, unfortunately, Richardson uh, will be killed. Meanwhile, as this is going on, one of those artillery fragments strikes Cross in the head. It shreds his hat and blood starts running down his face. Uh, Cross was about six foot, three inches tall. He had a flowing red beard, red hair, and now his face is just streaked with blood. So he pulls a red bandana out of his pocket and wraps it around his head as the 5th New Hampshire continues that advance, trying to drive back the Confederates. In the smoke and the fury of battle, the men of the 5th uh, lose contact with the New Yorkers on their right, and they find themselves all alone, crossed with 19 officers and 249 men. And they run smack into 250 Alabamians and North Carolinians under Daniel Harvey Hill, a Confederate general who was trying to lead a counterattack back against the bloody lane. Well, this is the moment Cross becomes a magnificent fighter. He sees these Confederate regiments advancing towards him and orders his men to lay down a murderous point-blank volley fire. And it's, it's almost perfect. It's like fighting on the drill field. Half of the regiment fires while the other half reloads as they fire and maneuver against these Confederates trying to get towards the bloody lane. Uh, one of the Confederate bullets will uh, strike off one of Cross's shoulder straps, and another bullet will hit his hand. The North Carolinians, the Alabamians that he's fighting, refuse to give way. They're only about 50 yards apart. For the 5th New Hampshire, ammunition is starting to run out. Cross and about a third of his men are down. He knows that action must be taken. So he orders his men to put on the war paint. And they look at him. What, what are we going to do? He starts smearing gunpowder <clears throat> from cartridges at his feet onto his bleeding face. And his men follow pursuit. He then tells them to give him the war whoop as they start shouting like a band of Apache warriors at these Confederates only yards away. It has the desired effect. It's only a momentary thing, but at the same moment, the 81st Pennsylvania under Boyd McKean comes onto line, and together with the rest of the 5th New Hampshire, they drive back the Confederates and save what was left of the 2nd Corps from being outflanked. It's really the greatest moment in Edward Cross's life. He is renowned in newspapers throughout the country. Uh, he's mentioned in dispatches all the way up to General McClellan. He's one of the few regimental commanders McClellan singles out at Antietam for heroism under fire. And for Cross, you know, this is the greatest moment of his life. It's an action that, in my opinion, by today's standards, he would have earned the Medal of Honor for. Oh, absolutely. That is a fantastic uh, telling of that incident. I cannot imagine what those Confederates must have thought when they saw those, <laughs> those Yankees coming at him like that. The Confederates uh, just remembered the, the screaming. They, they said it was, it was screaming rather than the, the bullets that, that drove them back. Wow. But there, there's always more to a man 
Uh, and I've, you know, we can see that he's a great warrior, a great fighter. Do you have any other anecdotes that speak to other parts of his character? Yes. You know, Cross was a great fighter. In action, he was excellent. Off the field, however, he w it was a different story. Cross was a man who enjoyed the bottle, frequently imbibing uh, quite a bit. Uh, that led to uh, quite a number of fights uh, with fellow officers in his regiment. Like I said, Cross was a supporter of the Democrat Party. He certainly did not support the politics of the Lincoln administration, uh, such as emancipation. For him, the war was simply about restoring the Union, restoring the Union, sequestering the rebellion, uh, restoring the status quo. Uh, he didn't see ending slavery as any part of that. He is going to get into frequent uh, newspaper fights with people back in New Hampshire. He's going to basically call up the governor, the adjutant general, other politicians in New Hampshire. And, you know, these politicians, you know, working for their constituents, there's a number of uh, men who had joined the fifth under age. Uh, one of them, 16 years old, is going to get uh, discharged, and uh, that's going to lead Cross on a tirade against one of New Hampshire's uh, U.S. senators who got this 16-year-old kid uh, discharged from the Army. It's, uh, it's quite, quite interesting. You know, Cross, you know, his politics don't really go with the cause that he is, that he is fighting for. Uh, he was a man who he knew how to write, and uh, he certainly knew how to uh, pick battles. Well, that's definitely the paper, newspaper man coming out there. Do you think that his politics, I mean, as people have said today, you know, there's a lot of politics in earning that star or earning the next star in the military. Do you think the politics is what kept him from a star? Yes, beyond, beyond a doubt. And this this is really when I was uh, when I was working on the book that a lot of uh, great new information about Cross's life uh, really came out after the Battle of Fredericksburg. Cross was hit in the chest by a shell fragment there, and some miracle he didn't die. The Fifth New Hampshire actually uh, is one of the Union regiments that gets closest to the uh, to the wall on Mary's Heights. But after Fredericksburg, he was positive. That he was going to get his star. He uh, he thought that you know his actions on the battlefield would be what was looked at, and that his politics would be forgotten. Well, after Fredericksburg, he goes to the White House, and he actually has a meeting with President Lincoln. And accompanying him is John Hale, who is New Hampshire's uh, senior U.S. senator, a Republican, somebody Cross had uh, butted head with heads with more than once before. Hale uh, and Cross meet with Lincoln very briefly, where Cross basically pleads his case to the president that he was the senior infantry colonel in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, he had been nominated time and again, especially after Antietam, after Fredericksburg, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock uh, had written almost a half a dozen letters of recommendation on his behalf to different politicians. And Cross was positive that after this meeting with the president, he would get his star, that uh, it would be in the next batch of nominations to go to the Senate. And basically, he was told in private by John Hale, the senator from New Hampshire, that if you can knock this stuff off about going on against the Republican Party and emancipation, you will get your star. 
Just throw your support behind the administration publicly and we promote you. So Cross says, okay, I can bite my tongue, you know, to get my star. So Cross makes two public appearances in New Hampshire where he supports the Republicans. He uh, gives his support to the party, to the support to abolition, emancipation. This is what he's saying publicly, but of course, he doesn't really harbor those feelings privately. So he does that. He recovers from his Fredericksburg wounds and goes back to the army in March of 63. And the, new, the next batch of Brigadier General promotions comes out. Contrary to what folks might not know, there was a certain allotment of general officer slots to each state. You know, obviously, the bigger the state, the more general off, the more regiments they sent, the more general officers they could have. Uh, For example, you know, uh, being from Rhode Island, Rhode Island only had, you know, three general officers during the war because it's a small state. New Hampshire at this point has a vacant brigadier slot. And that vacant slot is going to go to Colonel Marston of the second New Hampshire. Marston had been a congressman before the war, Republican congressman, well-connected. Uh, he had really only fought at Bull Run. He had been uh, severely wounded at a first Bull Run and sort of uh, wrote a desk after that, not really seeing uh, much combat, despite the fact the second New Hampshire had seen a lot of fighting um, on the peninsula at second Bull Run. So Marston had really only been in one battle early on. Uh, he'd been running a desk, but Cross is irate. He had been promised that promotion, and it goes to the colonel of the second New Hampshire. And after that, he was done. Uh, supporting the Republicans and, you know, went right back to his old ways of, uh, of attacking the Republicans. I should add that he was uh, pen pals with former President Franklin Pierce, uh, a Democrat politician from New Hampshire, who, although, you know, was sort of uh, out of the way during the war, Cross kept in touch with him about uh, the affairs of the, of the party. They they really took the carpet rug right from under him. Yeah, it um he uh so he uh, he goes he goes into the uh, the last few months of his life, uh, commanding a brigade, but not the star to go with it. Right, right, and he would take that brigade to Gettysburg, correct? Yes, yes, he uh he uh, was a brigade commander at uh, Chancellorsville. He had done very well in that engagement, first one as a brigade commander. His brigade was the last standing Union troops on the Chancellorsville Plateau as the Confederates uh, advanced. But he goes to the uh, Gettysburg campaign commanding uh, the smallest brigade in the Army. It's only uh, about 800 officers and men strong. And uh, that's where we will find him on July 2nd, 1863. And he has some... Very stark um, premonitions about the battle. Yes. When he was living in Cincinnati before the war, he often went to uh, see a clairvoyant and believed he could communicate with the dead. Uh, He wrote back to Henry Kent. He had had conversations with his dead grandfather who fought in the revolution, uh, with his old uh, friend, uh, James Ricks, who had run the newspaper. So Cross, you know, really believed in spiritualism. And he was positive he was going to die at Fredericksburg. Uh, He, you know, wrote as such, you know, wrote his goodbye letters, 
and was surprised when he was just hit in the chest and almost killed, but he went into battle time again, thinking he was going to be killed. On the way to Gettysburg, you know, he he said again, you know, you know this is this is it. This is the end of the road. It's going to be my last battle. But I sort of wrote that off because when you read his other accounts, especially of Fredericksburg, you know, he had said before every engagement. So going into uh, Gettysburg on the morning of July 2nd, Winfield Scott Hancock, who was really Cross's biggest fan, biggest supporter, rides up to Cross and says, Colonel, the day will bring you a star. And Cross looks at Hancock and says, no, sir, today will be my last battle. And just about every historian has attributed that what Cross is telling Hancock was, I'm about to die. I, I don't see it as such. I see that Cross went into Gettysburg telling Hancock, this is my last battle. I have been passed over time and again. I am tired of the politics. I'm going back home to New Hampshire or back to Arizona when this is over. I will fight one more battle and I'm done. Right, right. I mean, uh, you know, people like a good story. So, you know, every, for every person that said, oh, we're going to die in this battle and then live. Well, no one prints that story. But the guy who said, I'm going to die and then dies. Well, that's, you know, a whole premonition and a whole nother thing. So people definitely print that story. So, but uh, so what happens at Gettysburg? How does he perform? He's in his element there, I imagine, on the battlefield. Well, the uh, Sickles men get, get driven back. And so Caldwell's division goes into combat at the wheat field. And uh, Cross's men are the first Union troops uh, to enter the wheat field. And he deploys, uh, deploys his brigade into action and gets ready. And this is where I feel Cross makes his only mistake as an officer in command of troops during the war. His brigade was arranged with the 61st New York, followed by the 81st Pennsylvania, seven companies of the 148th Pennsylvania out in the open, and then three companies of the 148th Pennsylvania and uh, the 5th New Hampshire in Rose's Woods. And Cross, the bulk of his brigade, is out in the open in the wheat field. And he wants to launch a coordinated attack of all four regiments. Uh, he had already sent all of his staff officers out to do other things, uh, round up prisoners, get reinforcements, because he realizes when they get into wheat field, you know, there's a lot more Confederates here than we had thought. So he sends staff officers galloping back to Hancock, back to Caldwell, bring up the rest of the, the division. So he's there all alone, and he decides on his own initiative to go to lead the brigade's attack from Rose's Woods. Uh, the woods are, if you've been down there where the 5th New Hampshire's monument is, uh, the woods are really thick, very dense. You really can't see much. That's where the 5th New Hampshire and uh, three companies of the 148th Pennsylvania are. So he tells the men out in the open, wait here for the bugles of the 5th New Hampshire to initiate the assault. As Cross is uh, striding down to where the 5th New Hampshire uh, is fighting in, in uh, the woodlot against men from the 59th Georgia and the 1st Texas, 
uh, he's going to be shot in the stomach and uh, mortally wounded. The men out in the open uh, from the 81st Pennsylvania, the 61st New York, they never hear the abuse. Those two regiments in the bulk of the 148th Pennsylvania just bleed their strength out. They, uh, they don't advance. They just stay there slugging out volleys with the Confederates. Uh, they quickly run out of ammunition, and they, the brigade has to retreat uh, before the rest of the brigade under leaders like uh, Zook and uh, John Roder Brook get into action. So he's, uh, he's shot in the stomach and uh, mortally wounded around 6 o'clock on July 2nd, 1863. Was he wearing a bandana during that fight? Yes, he was. He was, he was wearing a black bandana. And again, uh, you know, my, my co- some of my colleagues in the field will write that, well, that signified death. But, you know, my interpretation of wearing that black bandana was him, again, saying, everyone, this is my last battle. This is it. When I'm done fighting here, I'm going back home to New Hampshire or back to Arizona. Uh, so it was, to me, a symbol of, of the end of his relationship uh, with the Army of the Potomac. But uh, we'll never know because he is going to die at 1230 in the morning on July 3rd, 1863, in a field hospital in back of the uh, Cops of Trees. Wow. What an end to a fantastic career. Yeah, he, you know, he... He, he, he was 31 years old when he dies. This guy does more in 31 years than most, some people who live to be 100. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just a remarkable, a remarkable story of this guy from a small town in northern New Hampshire, you know, goes on to do this remarkable thing. And we're, we're, as a historian, it was so fortunate that his life was uh, so well documented. Let's talk about the, that research you had to do for this fantastic book. Firstly, why do you think Cross falls into that realm of untold civil war? I mean, as far as I know, you're the only one who's written the definitive biography on the man. Yes. You know, I, I think really he falls into that realm. <clears throat> you know, he, he dies in the civil war. There are other people who die in the Civil War, notably uh, in Wisconsin. Hans Christian Haig, uh, the Colonel of the 15th uh, Wisconsin, who dies at Chickamauga. But, you know, his life, he's had books written about him. There was a statue of him in front of the State House. I don't know if it's got put back up. But, you know, somebody like Haig, you know, his life, he had died in the war. His life was very well documented. Cross, he dies in the war. He doesn't have any children, any descendants. He comes from a very small town in northern New Hampshire, and he's really forgotten, except by men of his regiment. You know, they, they really, his deeds, while they were, they were published nationwide uh, during the war, you know, really die with him. And over the years, as the veterans of the 5th New Hampshire died out, you know, they hit the story, you know, of him at Antietam, the story of him you know, fighting at Fair Oaks really die out with those veterans. It's really not until uh, the 1960s when uh, Bruce Catton writes his uh, Army of the Potomac trilogy that uh, Cross really starts to reemerge, you know, from ob- obscurity. Uh, there had been a, a movement after the war to uh, have a statue of him erected in the State House, Concord, New Hampshire. That fizzles out. The money that is raised actually is uh, given to the family so they can pay for a headstone for him. In time, the, the state of New Hampshire in 1868 
they'll uh, they'll put a uh, a painting of Cross in the state house uh, where it still is, and they'll actually display one of his dress swords uh, at the state house. But you know, it's it's part of a collection of you know, there's a painting of just about everyone from New Hampshire who you know commanded a regiment. Their paintings at the state house, so it sort of blends all together. Right, right. But it's really, it's really not until Catton rescues Cross from oblivion, writing about what he did at Antietam, what he does at Gettysburg, that he starts to starts to reemerge from oblivion. And you know, there there were some attempts over the years uh, by others to write a biography of uh, Cross. Uh, several people were actually turned off to writing a book about him because of his politics in the 1860s, uh, his, uh, his battles against abolition, against the Lincoln administration. That actually set uh, somebody like uh, Cantor, who had written about Andersonville, into not writing about Cross. So, you know, the, the research material uh, also on him was, was everywhere. Research from this book literally took me from New Hampshire to Arizona. And, you know, a lot of material being found in Cincinnati, St. Louis. So, you know, you really had to know where to go uh, look for uh, the material. Uh, several other people uh, tried to write a book about Cross. One of them was uh, Mike Pride and Mark Travis. They wrote a remarkable regimental history in 2001 called My Brave Boys to War with Colonel Cross and the Fighting Fifth. That book was that book was my introduction to Cross, but it's a regimental history of the Fifth New Hampshire. It's not a biography of Cross, right? And you really you really have to you know look at his early life. You know, again, those twenty nine years he lived before the Civil War prepare him for the eighteen months that he's in command of the Fifth New Hampshire. And you have written a fantastic book. How can people get this this book? Uh, it can be uh, it can be found on Amazon. Uh, com. I know um, I know it's available at uh, several places in New Hampshire, and it's it's still out there. It's still in print, and uh, I'm always happy to uh, to talk about the Colonel and uh, sign any copies that uh, might come my way. Fantastic. Well, I have my copy coming. Uh, it was uh, out of stock for a little bit on Amazon, but my copy is coming, so I got to get that to you for, to sign if you could. Yeah, certainly would. Uh... Certainly love to. Uh, we'll, All right. we'll get in touch about that. Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It really means a lot. And this is a great topic. So thank you. Thank you, sir. And I hope to have you on for another topic. Sounds great. I'm always here. Fantastic. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in while flying to your summer vacation spot, walking the beach, writing your reenacting memoirs, scrolling through the badge maker's wares or whenever you listen to podcasts stay safe and please tune in next time for our next episode